This is the last Sunday after Epiphany, and every last Sunday uh, after Epiphany, we concluded the season with another Epiphany. So we begin Epiphany with an Epiphany, and we close the season with an Epiphany. And every last Sunday after Epiphany, we read the story of the Transfiguration in one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. So I want to say some things about what the themes have been for this particular uh, Sundays after Epiphany in the B cycle, and uh, to do a little recapitulation, because you know how much I love the word recapitulation. And then to talk about the Marx version of the Transfiguration story and how we might understand that. Because embedded in the Transfiguration story uh, also is some learning about what uh, mountaintop experiences are and some understanding of uh, themes that have been used in interpretation to understand what occurred there and how it might connect uh, to our own experience in one form or another. So the first Sunday after Epiphany is always the story in one form of the Gospels about the baptism of Jesus. And we call that Sunday the baptism of Christ. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, Epiphany proper has the story of the baptism of Christ. In our tradition, the Epiphany proper is the visit of the three wise persons to the infant Jesus as a testimony and the biblical witness of the universal significance of the incarnation, God becoming a human being, and what that means. So we then read the baptism on the Sunday, which is the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry. So we think in those terms we also talk about, and we do the week after, vocation. What does it mean? Because each one of us who have been baptized has now been indelibly, been given an indelible character. In the original languages that describe what occurs at baptism, the Greek that is used has to do with the same processes that occur when a minter mints a coin in the ancient Near East and strikes the imprinter and the press of the imprinter into the, into the coin uh, that gives it its coinness, so to speak. So we have then the story of what it means to have a vocation. What does it mean when we speak about the Christian character? And in the third Sunday in Lent, or rather in, in the, after Epiphany, we have Paul talking about uh, issues around character as well. But also Paul is speaking here about some things that are important. And all the readings we read from 1 Corinthians through the Sundays after Epiphany have something to do with this idea of participation. The Episcopal Church is an amalgam of uh, Reformed Continental Theology from the Reformation and the Historic Catholic Church of the West. And these things came together in a way that gave us an idea about 
how we differ on one hand from the Roman Catholic Church and how we differ on the other hand from the churches of the Reform. And Paul in his writing is speaking about uh, the way in which he understands the centerpiece of the Christian faith and life. And for so many centuries, those churches influenced by the Protestant tradition believed that the centerpiece of Paul's theological outlook was justification by faith through grace. And there's been a lot of work done on this for the last 35 or 40 years. And I think many New Testament scholars might say justification by faith through grace is not unimportant by any means. But the real centerpiece, or at least coupled with justification, is participation in Christ. The real understanding of Jesus as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the template that we lay over our own spiritual life, and that we understand that because of the mighty works of Jesus Christ, we now participate with him in this life. Justification by faith through grace is a very narrow moment in the life of the individual Christian. It's when you hear the story. This is very important in the ancient Near East and in, 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 you know, uh, in the Gentile community. It's, you keep hearing this message from people that believe that Jesus is the Messiah. You keep hearing the message about him rising from the dead. You keep hearing the message about what it means for humanity. You keep hearing it and you listen to it and you listen to it and you listen to it. And finally you say, I believe it. I accept it. And at that moment, you are declared in the right. You are justified. You are acquitted of anything in your past that was not good. And so what it is in the original language is court of law language from Rome and from the Greek thought world that says, the judge has acquitted you. You are not guilty. This has nothing to do with your moral character. It doesn't make you a good person. And you're not being acquitted because you are a good person. You are being acquitted because of your faith in the saving work of Christ. But what the next movement is after this very narrow moment is that you now begin to discover through the sacramental life of the church, through the community life of the church, how you participate, what it is that you can do, and how you now become part of the body of Christ. So Paul is at pains to focus on this as the thing that is important for us moving forward. And that's why his writings and that's why his uh, historical uh, being here uh, is so important for Christian people. I don't believe the view that Paul was the founder of Christianity. I think it's untrue. And there are many people who, who uh, do, but I don't, I'm not one of them. It has to do with the way in which he begins to describe the fusion between the thought world the thought world of first century Palestinian Judaism and the Gentile Greek-speaking world and how these two things come together. And what kind of a worldview is created out of that, that moving together of these things. 
So let me move to the transfiguration story. And uh, before, before that, I should say, one of the Sundays had something to do also with what we consider to be authoritative. How does a Christian person understand what the sources of authority are? You know, this isn't unique to Christianity. If any of you have taken an introductory course in college in philosophy, you'll know what when we start to talk about what is authority, what has authority, and where are the locations for this, right? So if you're a Greek, you have a location for the sources of authority. If you are a Jew, you have a source of authority. And these are the sources that we talk about and see what value they have and how we interpret what they mean. Episcopalians have three sources of authority. The Bible, the tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. And these three things uh, are, are not separated. They're a unity. So it's important for us to understand what the Bible says, but more important to understand what it means, to understand how it has been interpreted by Christian people over the centuries, to understand the fluid nature of biblical interpretation, and that in every age, Christians have the responsibility and the obligation to uh, use the tools of interpretation to come to a deeper and fuller understanding. And finally, our human reason and experience is the way we do it, the place we do it, and how we understand it. We read today from Mark's version of the transfiguration. Uh, the word is metamorphosu. Have you ever heard that word? So that's what happened. Jesus was metamorphosized in a, in a sense in this particular context. Father Thomas Keating says this about the transfiguration. I really like this. On the mountain, Jesus was transfigured. That is to say, the divine source of his human personality poured out through every pore of his body in the form of light. The transfiguration manifests the kind of consciousness that Jesus enjoyed which was not bound by the three-dimensional world, the spacious world of unity with ultimate reality enabled him to be in direct contact with all creation, past, present, and future. And uh, Father Keating also describes the story in the Bible about the ascension as Jesus now transcending time and space and history. So that in the ancient world, this is how uh, it began to be interpreted. There's something uh, I should mention about this too, a story I'll tell you. Um, when I was in seminary, I uh, had come back from the Shota House to have interviews with all of the commissions and the bodies in the institutional church who are in the process of vetting you to determine whether or not you're worthy uh, to be ordained and what your progress has been and how you're going to do that. So I came back and uh, came to San Francisco, and it, it coincided with, with an event at Grace Cathedral called the Trinity Institute. And the Trinity Institute is a program that is sponsored every year by Trinity Church Wall Street. And I don't think they call it Trinity Institute anymore, but what it is is a, a focus on a particular subject and uh, people who are have some reputation about what it is that's going to be talked about. 
And uh, the, one of the people that was at the Trinity Institute when I was there was a man named uh, Brother Roger Schultz. And he was one of the founders of the Teze community. You may have heard of the Teze community. And he was there as one of the speakers. So at an intermission, a friend of mine who was working for the Trinity Institute asked me if I would like to meet Brother Roger. And I said, yeah, sure. So he said, well, let's just go in this room. He's waiting to go back on and give his next talk. So I went in and met him, and I looked at his face. The Eastern Orthodox Church has a term they use for what I'm going to describe called the uncreated light. That it is in the person. And when I met him and saw him, I, for the first time in my life, saw that in his face. You know, what, what's described in the transfiguration, the light that comes in from the soul out through the face. It was a, really an extraordinary experience uh, to see that kind of thing. All of us have seen that in one way or another, and maybe some of you have had people to say to us when they haven't seen us in a long time, gee, you look different. Now, that can be a negative comment, <laughs> Right? Or it can be something like, you look good, you look like things are, you, we, I can see it in your face, the serenity, it's there. And that that's part of what the uncreated light might be when we think about that with people, and that it is possible. There's a famous figure in the Western spiritual, in Eastern spiritual life, a man named Saint Anthony of the Desert. And he lived as a hermit for 25 years in the desert in Egypt. And a famous bishop of Alexandria named Athanasius wrote a biography of St. Anthony. And he tells the story in his biography of an announcement that went out, you know, through the towns and villages in Alexandria that St. Anthony was going to come out of his cave. So people fogged out there to see this. And all of a sudden, they stood there and St. Anthony came out of his cave. And Athanasius was one of them and he said, Anthony comes out. He looked at all the people. He did not look particularly like he was happy to see us, nor did he look like he was uh, unhappy that we were there. He did not look like he had wasted himself with over-the-top austerities. He looked like a man who was at home with himself. He looked like a man who was at home with himself. You know, I think it would be nice to have somebody say that about us, don't you? Someone who is at home with themselves, not looking so exceptional, but maybe the uncreated light is there in his sense of serenity. In the classic spiritual life, when you use the term resignation, 
It does not mean that you are resigned or apathetic about things. It means that you have now accepted the, the, your life, the self, and that you can then make spiritual progress moving forward. So when we think about that, that's important. Now let me say a word about the uh, mountaintop experience. Jesus is on the mountain. He's transfigured in front of the, 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 the apostles, the four apostles. They're absolutely terrified. And Peter says, you know, it's a good thing we're here. We should make three booths. One for you, one for Elijah, and one for Moses. We want to freeze the experience. Have you ever had an experience in your life that you wish would go on forever? doesn't have to be about some deep philosophical insight, but it can be something that was an experience or something you were doing that you just absolutely wish this could go on forever. So Peter thinks this is what we should do. Let's freeze this. Let's put everybody in booths and move forward. And the thing is that in the Bible, all of the descriptions of this kind of transfiguration experience are pointers to a new future where your past and your present and the future all come together. And it's part of the way in which we understand how we are supposed to live. What then must we do? So I think it's important to cherish your mountaintop experiences. Sometimes we have, and they're only a split second long. John McQuarrie, the, the theologian, when he talked about this passage from the gospel, he said, this was a moment for the apostles to see Jesus in depth. And what he means is they understood now who he was and what was going to happen. Or how this was going to play out and what it meant for him and what it means for them. So he saw them in depth. This doesn't have to be some extraordinary thing in our own life. I'll tell you one when I was a little boy. It was when I, the day I knew how to read. At that moment, the code had been broken, and I realized the significance of being able to do that with some ease. When I was like six, you know, seven, I, I, I just got it. I could read. And I understood that some way in depth about what it would mean for me to be able to do that in my life going ahead. So it can be something like that. Or you could be on the track team at Columbia University like Joseph Campbell, the guy who's written all the stuff about myth. And he was on the track team probably in the 1930s or 1940s and he was standing in the stadium. And he said for a split second... I knew exactly who I was, where I was, and what I was supposed to do, and understood it completely. My place in the cosmos. And he called it bliss. Following your bliss. And how that works out. So, uh, mountaintop experiences and transfigurations are not just unique to Jesus. But they're pointers because people can experience those things and they're important. This is important to ha read this reading before Wednesday 
because then we begin Lent. And Lent is a period in which we are called to do some serious self-examination and repentance. In Western Christianity, there has been way too much emphasis, uh, certainly since the, the Reformation in the 16th century, on penitential acts. You know, I'm having no seized candy for Lent. Okay, okay. But that's not the main focus. The main focus is to look at your life in a new way and to reaffirm your baptismal promises and to understand how God unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives you and how we're going to move forward with that knowledge and belief and owning it and what we're going to be able to do. So as you get ready, think about... Um, serious self-examination and repentance, but also uh, think about the promises that were made at your baptism and how wonderful they are. Sometime Wednesday, at, between the 10 o'clock liturgy and the 7 o'clock liturgy, I am going to come in here and read the baptismal covenant to myself. I do it every year in the Book of Common Prayer, and I'm going to ask the question, how have I been doing for the past year with all these? Will you seek and serve Christ in others, loving your neighbor as yourself? For example, that's one of the baptismal promises. How have I been doing? So, I guess the best thing to say is, get ready. Amen. <laughs>